Nick Austin and for Steven Henderson. And on this edition of the podcast, we take a look at the falling vaccination rates happening with Michigan toddlers and kindergarten age children. Why exactly is it happening and why are public health officials so concerned locally? To get an idea of that, the impact and what might be behind it, we spoke with Macomb County Public Health Director Andrew Cox. Director Cox, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that you're here, too, because before we even get into uh, the specifics of uh, what the rates are at, or we can get into that, but I just want to put an idea for folks who, who aren't so familiar with this, this process. Why are you guys concerned about rates right now? Why is this important? Yeah, anytime we look at rates and coverage and protection of the community, it has impacts not only for the age group, but the community that we, we live in. Uh, if you think about it, we live with our children. We, we play with our children. We, we're grandparents that visit with our, our children. So if they're possibly, you know, has this disease, that, that could spread to our community. And more importantly, we want to protect the youth, the children. These are severe diseases. And to see a, a child or even to lose a child to this disease is very serious. And that's really what we want to bring awareness to as these rates continue to, to drop and decline, we're, we, are, we are susceptible to these diseases. We are susceptible to seeing diseases that we have not seen in years. Right. Uh, we just saw a measles outbreak in, in 2022 in Ohio, just, just around us. Uh, these diseases are very scary and they have long lasting effects even if individuals do survive. Uh, so that's why we're very concerned about this. Right. And I, off the top, I was talking about our most recent large scale experience with COVID-19 and the coronavirus. But when you refer to diseases, you're specifically referring to a broader range. So what exactly are you talking about and what are we seeing in terms of rates for these? Yeah, there's many there's many vaccine preventable rates and uh, diseases that we can talk about. Uh, measles, mumps, rubella, varicella, which is chickenpox, commonly known as chickenpox, whooping cough, uh, things even like polio. Uh, that we've we've eliminated in the U.S., but we you know we just had that recent case in New York uh, that popped up, and now we're we're actually doing sewage surveillance to detect some of these diseases uh, because we are concerned about it. Yeah. So in terms of your concerns, then let's put a pin on exactly what's happening with the rates. Why it has you concerned? What are we seeing with rates right now? Yeah, we've seen uh, definitely since 2020 uh, a decrease, and we, and you can attribute that definitely to the pandemic. So for, for instance, in Macomb, our rates were um, right around 73%. We are now currently at 2023, that level is at 64% coverage uh, for ages 19 to 36 months. So that's, like you mentioned, those are, those are kindergarten age children that are going to be going into the school system. Uh, that is a requirement to have that schedule, that vaccine schedule. But you can see that's a, that's a 10% drop and we have not seen that rate that low in 13 years in Macomb. And that trend is just not in Macomb County. It, it's, it's statewide. And even you can look at nationwide data. Uh, the same percentage drop uh, has, has happened in Michigan itself with over 10% decrease in, in vaccination rates. Do we have any idea what, why, what might be driving that uh, decrease? Yeah, I think it's, it's multifactored uh, reasoning. And I think that's why we have to really work together for solutions. Um, first off, when, when everything shut down, that included also, unfortunately, um, healthcare, healthcare, uh, family practices, providers that, that shut down. So individuals that, 
you know, were going to appointments cannot, could not have access to, to care, health care. And so all those individuals were behind. So we're not only, you know, of course, there's more and more individuals being born, uh, youth being born. So we have to get them, but we're, we're also trying to take care of those backlog children and get them caught up. Um, and that's not been easy for people. It's been difficult for some people to get access to providers, uh, access to clinics to get immunized. And it's really important that we provide that access and something that we're working on, you know, getting out to the community with mobile clinics, mobile uh, vaccine partners, uh, but also working with community partners to spread that message. It, the message just can't be just from local public health officials, but it has to come from the community as well, whether that be faith-based community uh, representatives or leaders, uh, people that, that trust and, and have that trusted connection with the community to get that message out as well. All right, right. And then you said that there's that portion of it, access. Uh, in terms of getting that up, you did mention ways of getting to folks who are, are more trusting or have that connection with their communities to say, hey, this is important. Uh, what resources do you have for people who might be trying to spread that message now? Where can they go to find out more and how to help with that process? Yeah, we definitely have uh, MacombGov.org uh, uh, is, a, is a site for all of our information at the Health Department for Immunization. We also want to gear towards people to reputable sources, you know, in terms of vetted scientific sources, CDC, um, other state resources that has information on vaccine information and also diseases so that people can understand and truly get to know that risk. We also want to encourage them to talk to their medical providers, encourage that discussion to occur with your your medical primary care provider or ourselves. We 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 have clinics that we can welcome people. Uh, if if you don't have healthcare coverage or can't afford vaccines, we'll take care of you. We'll help you out. We don't want that to be a barrier. Right. That's how how strongly we feel about this. That we want to get kids vaccinated. We we can't take. Uh, any opportunity lightly, and, and every time, every opportunity to vaccinate someone is, is critical. Right, right. You mentioned min, uh, working with local organizations. What's your personal experience or the experience of your organization been like? That uh, take give me the idea of what that interaction's like for you. Yeah, you know, I think this is actually one of the silver linings in COVID. We have been able to establish relationships with community partners that we we didn't we just didn't have before the pandemic especially some of our uh, community organizations, our senior centers, are our, our also our schools, uh, and then also our faith base, some churches that we, we did COVID clinics right on site. Uh, we also have done uh, clinics with Montessori schools and daycare providers. Uh, we continue to do that today, and, and actually it's a priority. We're <clears throat> doing back-to-school Back to school, M's drives, and yeah. back to school uh, with our school is something that uh, you know we just simply haven't done in the past. So that that's encouraging to see. Yeah, and out there in Macomb, you did mention access being one issue. I believe you were leading into the idea of misinformation, or I want to see if that's something that you think might be impacting stuff. If so, why? Where are you getting that information from? But is, is misinformation something that's been a struggle for you also out there in Macomb County? Yeah, probably one of the biggest things that we hear constantly from from the public and residents is the misinformation that after I've gotten a vaccine, I've, I've gotten that illness. Oh. And often that's that's due to because of your immune response that's occurring. So you might have uh, a slight fever right. and chills. And so someone uh, equates that to, well, now I got it. I got I got the disease from the, the shot or the immunization. That's just simply not true. And we really want to try to educate people on that. Uh, of course, for a short time, you know, 
usually it's within 24 hours, you might have that immune response and you might not feel perfect, but that's your body doing what it's supposed to do and protecting you from more severe illness down the road yeah. and protecting you. And, and one of the other common mis- misinformation items is that because I already have it, I'm, I'm protected. Yes, you are protected, but oftentimes it's for a shorter amount of time. If mm. you get immunized, that protection actually lasts you long, long after that that uh, natural immunization has worn off. So something that we want to bring awareness to as well. Right. And we're talking about a vast array of uh, diseases here and things that you can get vaccinated against. And we're talking also about the rise in lower or the, the lowering of vaccination rates of kindergarten age children, toddlers. I want to think about some of the things that I heard even before we were in this swath of misinformation. For example, when you're younger, you have a stronger immune system. I got chicken pox when I was a kid. I, I was out of school for 15, or for two weeks in a day, which by the way, pretty heroic, got a lot of time off. Plus, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I've got the stronger immune response now because I experienced it and if it happened later, that would have hurt, but since it happened earlier, I'm fine. Why is that not a good strategy? Why should someone just get vaccinated instead? You know, I think the big flaw with that is something that we've we've lost sight of a little bit, in my opinion, is that protection of the community. Um, because you're healthy and young, and I'm healthy and young, um, it's not just about us, though. It is about those that can't get vaccinated, because there are people for medical reasons, due to allergies or other uh, immune responses, that there are um, compromised. They cannot just they can't go out and get immunized, so they're they're unprotected. So we have to think about not just ourselves, yeah. but also those others out in the community as well. I got to say, you know, even personally, uh, before the pandemic, the flu vaccine, I never got it. I was like, I don't need that. I want to build up a robust system. I'm young. I'm healthy. When my uh, primary care physician, my PCP, said to me, yeah, Nick, but what about everybody around you? That was the thing that made me go, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, let's do our part. Immunocompromise can't. Some people have lesser yeah. access. And we're trying to figure out ways that we can communicate to folks why it's important. So that's one way that helped persuade me. Are there any other methods that you've known about that have been effective in talking to people that you know and trying to get them to understand why this is important? I think, you know, being honest with people, and, and if you don't have the answers, be honest with individuals. Share what we know. Share the data. Uh, try to uh, provide information in a way that doesn't make them feel bad about their decision uh, or where they're at with with lack of information, but truly from an education standpoint, be there as an ally for that individual. Encourage them to go talk to, if, if you're a family member or someone else that doesn't know this information, get them in contact with someone that is an expert. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we just have to do and, and not criticize people for, for one decision or the, or the next, but to really encourage them to get that information and, and be an advocate of the community. Yeah, We're speaking with Macomb County Public Health Director Andrew Cox about the, uh, the, the troubling decrease in rates of vaccination for toddlers and kindergarten-age children. We can speak with you as well. Give us a call, 313-577-1019 if you have any questions about these rates. If you're someone who's vaccine skeptical, you can let us know why, what questions you might have or concerns. Talk to an expert who knows something about it. We'll see if we can slide you into the conversation here. Again, 313 577 one zero one nine. I, I want to get in a little bit of the technical aspect of this too, right? Because with the lowering of rates.
state, what type of impact does that have in terms of uh, communicability or transfer, right? Because you would think, oh, well, if it's just down 2% or 3%, is that a big deal? I don't want to take a risk with my kid. So let everybody else get vaccinated and that will be sufficient. Me not vaccinating my kid will have no impact on the spread. How does it change uh, depending on that percentage? Yeah. So for for every percentage, that that's more susceptibility that we have in our population, and especially these are school-age children. Oh, so yeah. the the hard the hard fact is that when when we do have a disease outbreak in in a school, we have to exclude those children that aren't vaccinated. So we all know through the pandemic how important it is to have our children in school. Right. We want them in school. It's it's so important. So when we have an outbreak, that means that we have to eliminate uh, and exclude that risk for that disease to spread. And so that means that there's there's exclusions that are occurring in school. That means your child is out of school for an extended amount of time. It can be up to 21 days, depending on what the, what the actual disease is itself. That's a significant amount of time to, to be out of school, and we don't want to see that. Yeah. And neither does the neither do the school community. So it's something that we want to bring awareness as well when we talk about uh, non-medical waivers for immunizations. That that is another uh, consequence of ha- of having that non non medical immunization, uh, which we've seen rates uh, last year. We saw one of the highest rates we've seen uh, over six years mm. with those non medical waivers uh, in Macomb. Yeah, and you know when I think about that again, another great point about making sure our kids are in school, making sure your neighbors' kids are in school. It's really that community aspect here that is so important to what we're discussing right now. So since you are forward facing, I, I kind of want to put a face on this too. As a public health official, what are you hearing from your folks, your people about people coming in with maybe misinformation, maybe hesitancy? Are you noticing a rise in terms of how people negatively uh, work with public health officials? What are you seeing out there on the ground related to this? Yeah, I think overall, you know, we've, we've seen definitely a fatigue in the community. Yeah. Uh, people don't want to talk about COVID anymore. We've, we've you know, uh, what I hear all the time is we've moved past it. Uh, that's Unfortunately, not the truth, because we we still we are still dealing with COVID, and yep. we are still working at the health department very diligently to control the spread of of COVID and actually educate people. Uh, we we have people today actually still on staff just working on COVID and doing a great job yeah. um, educating people. Yeah. But we're hearing there's there's fatigue out there from the community, and uh, I think that's been a challenge, and it's also been. For the first time ever, I think public health uh, during the pandemic was politicized. Yeah, and something that was was different for us as public health professionals. Um, luckily, you know, I think in Macomb, I was I was somewhat fortunate to have the county executive uh, that took the brunt of a lot of that, you know, a lot of those political calls and uh, uh, information uh, that he took that on front hand. So you know that that helped a lot. Yeah. Well, how do you guys deal uh, in terms of political? politicization, right? Like a lot of times we would think of uh, the bureaucrat, right? Not an elected official, just someone who gets put in that position and just does their job. They have no political interest. But now it seems folks are thinking that, no, there is a political agenda here, which is newer to me. But how do you deal with that politicization when you when it comes across uh, what you do? I, I think it's through education. I, I think it's just simply staying course with what the information is, what the facts are, what the data supports. And getting that information out, I, you know, you're not going to convince every single person or change their mind. But I think what people can respect is is, is a calm, level-headed approach that it's not personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a reason why they they have the belief they do. 
respect that. Um, and But you can respectfully disagree with people, and I think stand your point and advocate for public health. Right. Well, before I let you go, because I do know that I have to let you go at some point in time, uh, we've talked about misinformation. We're going to get into that a little bit later on next up in the show. But since you, again, are getting the uh, the the information, the messages from people. I'd like to know from you, just let me know. You can hit through the the hot list right now. Other than what we've discussed, what are some of the common uh, objections, misinformation that you hear, and what responses do you have to those common statements? Yeah, so I think I started and and said one of those already is that, uh, you know, I've I've got the disease from getting the the vaccine. Uh, That's just simply not true. Uh, That is impossible. Uh, The Technology around the mRNA vaccine uh, is amazing and, and something that I hope to leads to other vaccines that combat things like HIV, which we don't have a vaccine for, which would be be great. I think that's what that has done for us is opened up that door for technology, which as a public health professional, I'm very excited about. Yeah. And that's that's really what uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those diseases that we don't have answers for. Um, but it, it, it is combating that. I got it, uh, you know, especially we hear this with the flu shot. You know, I got the flu shot one year and it, I got I got the flu from it. That just can't happen. So really trying to clarify and educate people, go get your flu shot. Uh, it helps you. Uh, you know, we, we just don't know. We try to, uh, we try to uh, uh, guess how, what the activity is going to be right. in, in the coming season, but we, yeah. we just don't know. We don't know what it's going to do exactly. Yeah. So protect yourself. That's right. When I got my flu shot, I got a Band-Aid and a lollipop. So that was a pretty exciting experience. But that <laughs> we, also we, might have been like 20 years ago. But. We have those in our clinics, too. <laughs> oh, so, right. So we come come see us there for sure at the right. because we have those as well. We have great stickers well, you, and suckers. So you make sure you bring that treats. with you next time you come here, all right? That's been uh, – we're speaking with, again, Andrew Cox, uh, Macomb County Public Health Director. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. When we return, we're going to take a look at misinformation and see how it fits into this, if at all, and if it's on the rise, what could be the cause of that. We're going to do it with another great guest, author Sarah Kazindor joins us when we return on Detroit Today. Austin in for Stephen Henderson talking a little bit about misinformation right now as it came up with our last guest, Macomb County Public Health official uh, Andrew Cox. Misinformation has been on the rise. It's something he's dealing with in terms of decreasing vaccination rates for kindergartners as well as toddlers here in the state. In fact, many across the country. Not not just here in Michigan, believe that vaccines can make their conditions worse, as he just discussed. Rather than becoming healthier, they believe they make them feel sicker. And some of that belief may be coming from misinformation or false information. So why does this happen? Why do people even believe in false information and conspiracy theories? How do the two intertwine? Uh, Does one impact the other? To talk about this and get an idea of where the lines end and begin and what impact they could be having on us in our country, we have Sarah Kazendor here. She is the co-host of Gaslit Nation, a podcast and author of several books, including most recently, They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Sarah, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Oh, thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. I want to start off in the beginning because this even happened when I was talking to my producer, Sam Corey. We're talking about misinformation, false information, conspiracies. And sometimes I think the terms can get commingled and we can be using them inaccurately. So what is the difference between or what is misinformation and false information, first of all? Um, I mean, a lot of things get lumped into this term with misinformation or disinformation, where you have a range of things, you know, propaganda, lies, uh, simple human error, et cetera, put into that category. So I tend to not, you know, use those terms, um, basically, especially when you're dealing with something uh, that involves a betrayal of institutions that are supposed to provide veracity, you know, that are uh, designated to tell us the truth. Um, that, you know, for example, during the COVID pandemic, as you were just discussing, people relied on government officials, on medical officials, on the CDC, et cetera, um, and heard a lot of contradictory points. And so, you know, I wouldn't necessarily classify all of that as uh, misinformation because there's such an array of motive behind, uh, you know, the the information that's being relayed and its accuracy. Yeah, that's fair. So if you don't use the terms misinformation or false information, do you use those terms at all for anything specifically, or do you just try to call the point out specifically each case-by-case basis? How do you use those terms then? Yeah, I go case-by-case because a lot of times I feel like public officials try to hide lying and propaganda uh, behind misinformation or disinformation. You know, they'll say something vague like, there's a disinformation crisis instead of something more specific, like this individual has lied to the public, even though, you know, it's his job to tell the truth or this claim is not supported by evidence. You know, I think we should be looking for evidence, for facts, for primary sources. I think it's fine when people go and do their own research. It's really a matter of the quality of the research they're doing and access to information. And I think a lot of the problem we're facing now is that access to information is very difficult. You know, there are paywalls. There are search engines that don't work, uh, you know, in the way they used to anymore. There are sites like Twitter that got taken over and remade and algorithms that direct you to, you know, specific content that the algorithm believes that you should see, but that's not necessarily what you're looking for. And all that adds up to a very confusing uh, experience for a person uh, trying to look for information, particularly um, in a traumatic time. Yeah, that does make it very difficult to find good information. You say good information is behind a paywall. Meanwhile, there can be incentive, whether it's ads or otherwise, I don't know what they all are out there, to create false information, uh, sites that have uh, little, if any, actual research behind them, but they look really, really, really good. So what role has technology played in this uh, this proliferation of information that we see right now? Honestly, I think it's disastrous. And I think it's sad because I think about a decade ago, we were going in a really positive direction with technology. You know, all these experts, um, you know, from universities, from various, you know, scientific fields were able to share their insights at the public uh, directly without having to go through, you know, journalists as a mediator. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of, you know, Q&A, and much more of a sense of good faith. And now that there's been so much manipulation, both of individuals who, you know, intend to deceive the public, but also just structural manipulation. Like when you use a social media website with an algorithm that's trying to direct you to a certain type of content over and over, or when you have propaganda that's free, when well-researched investigative reporting is hidden behind a paywall, you're going to end up with a population 
that, you know, even if they're making their best attempt to find the truth, uh, it's going to have a very difficult job doing so. Yeah, well, let's get into the algorithms then, because I do hear people will will use the term to say, uh, I don't want to trust, or uh, the computers are making the decisions, right? But it's my understanding these algorithms, you know, whatever motive, the motive is just to get more clicks, get you just watching stuff. So what, you know, you talk about the algorithms, what are the algorithms doing? What do you think folks don't understand about how algorithms work to foster this current uh, crisis, if you will, of getting I think good a lot of folks, they, they understand what's happening. What everyone is struggling with is how to work around it because mm. they don't give you, uh, you know, the option to opt out of this system. You know, you're fed what you're fed, even if you join, you know, Facebook or something, and you're trying to just follow your friends and their activities and their lives, you don't necessarily see them if they post. You know, you'll see advertisements, you'll see invitations to groups. You know, a lot of times, you know, radical or extremist uh, political groups will pump an enormous amount of money uh, to make sure, you know, that their content is seen over others. And so some of this is financial. You know, people can buy the system so that they can rig it. And I think this is, you know, also uh, very destructive because it leads to loneliness. People lose those initial initial connections uh, that they had made when social media first appeared. And it seems to, you know, open the door uh, to a lot of new friendships, a lot of new insights, etc. Um, not only are those doors closing, you know, they're being replaced with portals to hell. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty dire time um, in terms of uh, discerning, you know, facts from fiction. Uh, not to get too far afield, we'll get back to misinformation in a moment, but one thing you mentioned there is people are trying to figure out how to get around the algorithms. I would think that one way you would do it would, you don't have to use Twitter, you don't have to use Facebook, you could try to uh, access another, the threads is, exist now, whichever system does it best, that will be the place that people go on social media, oh and by the way, I understand that people made friends across uh, a lot of different, the world in terms of social media, but Maybe we should be fostering getting to know people who are a little closer around us also when we can. So my point is that there are alternatives that don't require the algorithm. Why not just as the public force the algorithms to be better for us? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one, people want to reconnect with their community. And I think because of the pandemic, people were physically separated from each other in a way that they really hadn't been before uh, for an extended period of time. And that led to more online interaction that led to, you know, booming profits for all of these uh, technology companies. And now they're making decisions that don't reflect the public will. You know, they're making decisions that don't make the product better. They don't make connection better. They don't make communication better. Uh, they make propaganda propaganda and, uh, you know, commercialization easier. And so, yeah, to some degree, you know, it, it is up to the individual to attempt to navigate those waters. But when those waters are increasingly murky, you know, when the algorithms change, and you don't know why people are suddenly disappearing from your life. You know, and in this case, I'm thinking of people who live far away from you that you couldn't connect with otherwise. It can be uh, very confusing. And there's incredible demand for a service kind of like old Twitter or old Facebook that would simply allow people to reconnect with each other. And it's interesting to me that none of those rival uh, services, you know, like Threads, for example, that you mentioned, have really taken off. And I think part of it is it's hard to replicate um, that environment, you know, what happened the first time around is these were the first examples of these types of sites, you know, Twitter and Facebook and so forth. And so everyone kind of joined and everyone was in the in one place uh, for the first time. 
I think that's going to be very hard to recreate. And I think people are also just burnt out on the experience, on the negativity, on the lies, on the hostility, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. We're speaking with Sarah Kindizor, and we want to speak with you as well. You can give us a call, 313-577-1019, to join into the conversation. Uh, do you know or have, do you have friends? Are you someone who has fallen into uh, misinformation, maybe even conspiratorial thinking? We want to know what led you down that road, and did you come out of it the other way? What about your friend? What's your experience been like uh, interacting with them as again we speak with Sarah Kinsey or and Sarah I want to get back with you on this conversation although that that's fascinating we might have to get back into some of that uh, in terms of social media and where it plays in here and alternatives but I do want to loop in conspiratorial thinking here because we have spoken about uh, misinformation in terms of specifics and how difficult it can be to get good information does that have any connection to conspiratorial thinking and if so how do those two play a role with each other I mean, it does, but it depends what you mean by conspiratorial right. thinking, because there are actual conspiracies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're not that rare. You know, something like Watergate, Iran-Contra, 9-11, January 6th. Like, those are all real conspiracies. The mafia operates according to conspiracy. Intelligence agencies operate according to conspiracy. And so what they do, though, is they operate in the dark, and it forces people to have to figure out what's going on. And when you only have some information, but not all information, you form a theory. You know, so what you've done is you formed a theory about a conspiracy, uh, you know, a.k.a. a conspiracy theory. But then you become stigmatized uh, for even looking into these subjects. And then I think that's really detrimental because it stifles uh, civic inquiry, which, when in good faith, is a very good thing. Yeah, no, it is a very good thing to have civil inquiry. I guess the in, the issue here would be information, good information, bad information, right? You have a lot of uh, information that's out there, but is it something that's actionable, reputable? Is it something that you can go off of, or is it just something someone putting a rumor out there. And and that's why I want to loop back into the idea of actual information, because we've been speaking a lot in terms of general items. We've been speaking about uh, certain uh, industries, certain political leaders that have used this to their advantage. But you mentioned the importance of getting into specifics. So I want to give you an opportunity to let us know what are specifics that you've seen in this world that has had an outsized impact in, the, in spreading inf- misinformation or spreading uh, uh, conspiracies that you think have been detrimental? Oh, gosh. I mean, it, it's across the board. You know, you can see extreme examples of someone like Alex Jones, you know, who I see first and foremost as a propagandist, as a liar, uh, who's some, somebody who hides behind the mantle of conspiracy theorists to put out extremely hateful and uh, damaging political content. But we've also seen our institutions routinely fail us. You know, we've seen the CDC hide information, give bad information. We, of course, saw Trump uh, give inaccurate information about the pandemic. And we've seen Biden give inaccurate information about the pandemic when he proclaimed it over or said it was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Like, the COVID is this really horrific example of across the board bad information and some of it wasn't intentional some of it is it was an ongoing crisis and scientists and doctors and others you know who do have expertise didn't fully understand uh, what was happening but I really think this is something that hurt the American people badly I think it traumatized people regardless where they sit on the political spectrum and it was in part because everyone was trying to stay safe and everyone was scrambling to figure out what to do and they were being bombarded with a mixture of lies propaganda 
bad advice, incomplete information, etc. You know, a, a real mixture. Um, but in a time like that, when you're struggling to simply, you know, stay healthy, stay alive, uh, that is a very dangerous environment. Yeah, yeah, this is very interesting, and I have questions to follow up on that, but I also have some great calls that we want to get to, and we are going to do that when we return on Detroit Today as we speak, speak with Sarah Kinsey, our co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast and author of the most recent book of hers, They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Nick Austin in for Stephen Henderson having a fascinating conversation about uh, misinformation, conspiracy thinking, the difficulty of getting good information, what impact it has on our society at large. Speaking with Sarah Kinzior, who most recently wrote the book, They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. But we also want to speak with you, which is why I'm starting off with Emerson in Bloomfield Hills. Emerson, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hey, um, yeah, no, I was really enjoying the conversation. Um, definitely something that's very relatable to me. Unfortunately, uh, my brother, uh, my older brother, about 12 years older than me, he used to watch things on certain platforms, like on YouTube and stuff, uh, platforms that weren't necessarily like in themselves, like pushing conspiratorial thoughts, but the people who they'd give a platform to mm-hmm. would it, would kind of give them like a bigger voice like alex jones kind of types um and he'd just kind of be watching for the entertainment and the absurdity of it and kind of laughing at first but even then i was kind of worried yeah but now i feel like this like the algorithm on like youtube and other like like you know social media platforms has really taken him deep down the rabbit hole and it kind of like in a lot of ways feels like i've lost him and it feels like you know like you can't really engage and convince people when narratives on social media aren't really judged by like whether or not they're false or true or genuine they're judged based on like the emotional reactions they elicit you know before i toss it to sarah i just want to get an idea walker because this or excuse me emerson because this is very interesting around how long of a time did you notice for it to for that change to happen in your brother and what are your conversations with him like now well you know uh it's it's been a long kind of journey here um i'm i would say probably about five years ago Mm. um around the 2017 probably period actually so i guess more like six um is probably when i first started to get a little worried based on what i see in like his youtube recommended when we'd be hanging out um but now it's it's to the point where we, we had a recent uh, disagreement over, I, I just expressed some skepticism at uh, the people behind the recent movie uh, Sound of Freedom. And uh, that was that was the last time we've really um, talked. Mm. And it was kind of, uh, it's yeah. kind of to a point where it's, uh, his reaction was basically like, no, like I don't, I don't want that type of like contradiction to those things like in my life. 
you know. Yeah, I, I can hear just the, the struggle in your voice there and uh, how emotional it is for you. I present the uh, caller's comment to you, Sarah. Yeah, no, thank you for, for calling and for sharing that story. I think a lot of people have found themselves in that place. And I think what lies behind, you know, the ability of, of algorithms or inaccurate information to push people into these wormholes is fear. You know, people are online looking for this information out of fear, out of trauma, because they want to know what happened next, because they feel rightfully in many cases that they were deceived in the past, that our officials are not supplying accurate information, that our journalists aren't, or it's, you know, difficult to get behind the paywall. So there's a kind of desperation to it all. And I think once folks feel like maybe they found some kind of answer, or at least they've identified what the problem is, then they can try to maybe change things or find a community, you know, in a time where a feeling of community is lost, of like-minded individuals. And I think once you have that deep emotional attachment, it's hard to kind of move people into a more nuanced place. And so, you know, what I usually do is just try to find the common ground, which often, unfortunately, is an admission, um, you know, of institutional failure, an admission that a lot of powerful people do things out of terrible motivations, out of, you know, greed, um, you know, or abusive, you know, tendencies. And I think sometimes when that's there, when you acknowledge like, yes, you know, the pain is real and the people causing the pain are real and the details uh, of the situation are things we might not agree on, but just have a fundamental empathy for this shared experience of you know, being alive in, in 2023, I think sometimes c- can help. Yeah. Emerson, I echo Sarah's sentiments. Thanks again for calling and sharing that story with here us with us here on Detroit Today. I think it's so important for people to, especially if you're not experiencing it yourself, although I think many of us are, to hear these stories. We're now moving over to Gabriel in Detroit. Gabriel, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hi. Um, so I just want to say that I have been sort of, I feel like, vilified for by medical professionals by because of not vaccinating my children with every single vaccination that's out there. And I would say that I am not an anti-vaxxer. I am vaccine thoughtful, and I research every single vaccine. I want to know the ingredients. I want to know what I'm putting in my children's bodies. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, a Demo- I'm a Democrat, I'm a liberal, but it's like I feel like there's this cancel culture for people like me who are really looking into, you know, like what we're putting in our own bodies and our children's bodies. And, you know, some of us have been um, hurt by the medical field, you know, in different ways. And so we're, you know, we're skeptical and we want to make thoughtful decisions for ourselves and we're not going to just like sit back and have a doctor say oh this is what you need to do and just trust and believe in that and then i look at things like you know the sackler family who has deceived the american public with you know um opiates and and it's like we're supposed to trust these companies you know, with the vaccines wholeheartedly and not question, yet we see these things happening where we have been deceived. And then I also have a problem with the fact that we are not allowed to sue vaccine companies. And I also think that 
we haven't done enough research about autoimmune diseases and do vaccines um, or certain ingredients in vaccines sometimes cause autoimmune problems. Gabrielle, I I just want to jump in here really quickly. I mean, I think everyone wants you to be concerned about what you put in your child's body. I wouldn't recommend them drinking motor oil or anything like that. But I did notice that you said you'd been previously hurt by the medical field. And I just wanted to know if you could share what specific issues you know, that you had where the medical field came and hurt you that kind of made you go, I don't know if I can trust these guys anymore. What's that experience like for you? What happened specifically? Well, my mom had Guillain-Barre, um, which, you know, has has been linked to vaccines. Um, I personally have been prescribed med- medication that was, you know, just like doing the exact opposite um, you know, for me, than what I needed, like I had heart palpitations, and instead of looking into the cause of why I was having heart palpitations, I was prescribed Prilosec, which is like completely has nothing to do with it, and also like um, uh, lowers your magnesium in your yeah. body. And really, what was happening was I had a magnesium deficiency, sure. so I was giving a drug that did the exact opposite of what I needed. And I just have come to a point where I just, you know, it's like I can't, I feel like I can't really trust doctors to always have Mm -hmm. my best interest and my family's best interest at heart. And when it comes to vaccines, I really believe that when we're offered these vaccines, we should get the paperwork that goes along with that. We should understand what's in that vaccine right gabriel i I need to jump in i need to jump in right now just because we've got other calls and you know i do appreciate your your information and that request i hear what you're saying we should get the paperwork behind the vaccines when we get them i present the callers uh, statements to you sarah I think that that was a great comment. She actually made some of the same points I was going to make about the Sackler family, for example, and this history of uh, medical deception in the United States. You know, that is what has created a culture of distrust. It's not people randomly being paranoid. It's people having real uh, experiences with uh, pharmaceutical companies, with doctors, uh, in which all of these companies are treated as beyond reproach. You know, they're not allowed to be sued. We're not allowed to see the details. I did vaccinate my kids, but I was also skeptical. I was very worried. I didn't sort of take it in stride that this is the right thing. And when I asked questions, I had a similar experience of, you know, being condescended to or being accused of being some sort of, you know, radical anti-vaxxer who's against them, you know, all the way. And that's not the case at all. I just was worried about my children. So I hope folks, you know, listen with an open mind and an open heart uh, to what Gabrielle was saying, um, you know, even if you have a different position on the vaccines themselves, because there's a, a lot of important points in that comment. I want to move to Peter in Detroit right now. Peter, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hi there, Nick. Uh, you know what? I would say as far as people being resistant, particularly to give vaccines to their children, one of the things that we have going on is that we are victims of our own success. Nobody sees kids who have rubella anymore. Nobody sees kids with whooping cough. If you ever did, you'd walk through hell and high water to keep your kid from getting it. Mm. And if you want to see it, you can go on YouTube and just put in the search engine, child with whooping cough. You will get your child vaccinated for whooping cough. There's nothing like that. 
and we haven't seen it. We don't see kids getting it, and that's why people think, well, what's with these, with these immunizations? They're not doing anything. They are preventing something that is just about the worst thing you'll ever see a child go through. Peter, that is an excellent, excellent point. You know, I, I really appreciate your call. I think you said it better than I could myself. I present the statements to you, Sarah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that we have vaccines that have been used for, you know, decades, you know, if not a century, um, that have proved to be reliable, that have proven to be safe. I think a lot of the uh, frustration and the worry comes from the more recent developments within our healthcare system. It's failures. And with predatory companies, uh, you know, and families like the Sackler dynasty, uh, you know, that have openly deceived the public, that fully knew they were hurting people with opioids, that lied about the medicine they were giving like it's this recent environment of growing up now I think that's producing a lot of this anxiety and then the fact that during COVID uh, that crisis was handled you know so uh, inefficiently at best and maliciously at worst I think it's contributed to a more broad uh, dismissal of vaccines which I do not think is warranted I think you know polio and and, and other you know diseases that kids have been vaccinated uh, for against for a long time, you know, I, I think that there's no reason to suddenly doubt them now. Who handled the COVID vaccine maliciously? Who handled well? All of the people who are stealing and selling PPE, like the you know Kushner mm. and Michael Caputo and others in the uh, Trump administration. Mm-hmm. I, I think there was I don't know if it was intentional malice, but I think a lot of the statements made by uh, Walensky when she was heading the CDC were. Uh, you know, extremely uh, cruel, you know, where she basically was saying that it doesn't matter if uh, people who have pre-existing conditions or who are elderly or disabled die. There's just a general, there's a normalization of mass death where we're just supposed to shrug it off, that if someone is already sick or if they're very old, that their death from COVID just doesn't matter. We're not supposed to feel anything about it or try to prevent it. That is an incredibly dangerous and uh, toxic point of view. And it's the kind of thinking um, that leads to, you know, extremist political movements and just a a gross deficit of empathy. Yeah. Yeah. I want to move now to Walker in Detroit. Walker, I got about a minute left. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hi. So it's a little change of pace from what people have been talking about, but I've had an issue uh, recently speaking with my father about conspiratorial or misinformation online where he'd be watching uh, a video from Tucker Carlson uh, just playing it on his phone, where Tucker had stated that if you look around and you notice every city in America is worse off than it was three or four years ago, just as a blanket statement. And I was like, what is he talking about, Dad? Like, what do you mean? And he said, well, what's gotten better? I was like, what do you mean what's gotten better? What's gotten worse? I mean, the streets are being paved. And this is where we lived in Texas. But, you know, the streets are being paved down there. There's not people just out on the streets not having homes or people just injecting drugs because that's they don't have anything better or they're so worse off that's where they are in life and I was I was trying to ask him like what's gone worse and he just didn't have anything to refute that claim but just almost accepted that yeah. as being factual. Yeah, I appreciate that story, Walker, right? We have our own personal experience, but that will include what we hear from other sources. And now for you, I got about a minute, Sarah, go ahead uh, with your response to Walker. I mean, yeah, I I think Tucker Carlson says things to get an emotional reaction out of people, and it doesn't really matter whether he's coming with evidence and facts. I do think people are, you know, they're feeling the natural frustration and panic that they feel after a 
pandemic and attempted coup and all of this political turmoil. And, you know, his job is to tap into that and, uh, and and make money. And I think that that's simply what he was after. Yeah, yeah, there is a lot of that. This is a very fascinating. I could go on on this subject for a while because a lot of information came up here uh, that I really do appreciate that you brought up. Sarah Kazendior, co-host of Gaslit Nation, the podcast, as well as author most recently of the book, They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Thank you so much for joining us on Detroit today. Oh, thank you for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Program director is Adam Fox. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Mobian and Will Sessions. The Detroit Today podcast is edited by Jack Philbrand. Support the podcast by supporting WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Just go to WDET.org slash give.